Uh, the Bible reading this morning is going to be taken from the, the latter part of the first 10 chapters, so we'll be looking at Numbers chapter 9, verse 15 through to 10.10. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whether the cloud, wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days, or a month, or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out but when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. The Lord said to Moses, make two trumpets of hammered silver and use them for calling the community together and for having the camps set out. When both are sounded, the whole community is to assemble before you at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. If only one is sounded, the leaders, the heads of the clans of Israel, are to assemble before you. When a trumpet blast is sounded, the tribes camping on the east are to set out. At the sounding of a second blast, the camps on the south are to set out. The blast will be the signal for setting out. To gather the assemble, assembly, blow the trumpets, but not with the signal for setting out. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to blow the trumpets. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you and the generations to come. When you go into battle in your own land against an enemy who is oppressing you, sound a blast on the trumpets. Then you will be remembered by the Lord your God and rescued from your enemies. Also, at your times of rejoicing, your appointed festivals and new moon feasts, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. <laughs> G'day, good to see you. And today we've got Numbers chapters one to 10. Yeah! All right. Let's get into it now. Quote. I have left the city of destruction and am on my way to the celestial city. All right, so said Christian. Very good in John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. So Bunyan wrote his classic from prison where he was because of his Christian faith. This was a classic book up until 1950. This was the second most published book in the world next to the Bible, right? Massive, massive book. So he wrote it from prison 
Yeah, and in it he described the spiritual journey that every Christian must make before we get to the celestial city, our promised inheritance. It's a difficult journey. In Bunyan's book, the character Christian goes through places like the Slough of Despond. Have you been through that place? (laughs) The Valley of the Shadow of Death. And Christians have easily been able to identify with that journey, which is why the book is such a classic. And that is why the book of Numbers also speaks to all of us, not just to demographers demographers and statisticians. Most people I've discovered don't read the book of Numbers because of the title, Numbers. I mean, who wants to get high on statistics, right? You know, it does have two censuses, which is how you say the plural of census. It does have two of them for two generations, but it also has wonderful, wonderful stories. Uh, There's formwork, the first 10 chapters, that's why we're doing all of that today, and then from next week we get into the juicy, juicy stories, all right. But it speaks to all of us because it's filled with stories of real people who had to make a real journey not completely dissimilar to our own. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, there they are, the book of Numbers is entitled In the Wilderness because it describes the journey of God's people through the desert wilderness to the promised land of Canaan. So it begins here in these chapters. God's people, the Israelites, are still gathered around Mount Sinai only months after they've been rescued and redeemed from slavery in Egypt. The Lord has gathered to himself this people. He's told them how they are to live as his holy people. And they're then to show themselves completely incompetent to do. They do, they do this, they, they commit crass idolatry, they bow down to a golden calf, monumental disaster moment in the history of their relationship with the Lord. And yet, miracle of miracles, God sticks with them. And in Numbers chapter 10, they begin their journey through the desert to the promised land. So today, they're still at Mount Sinai and they're just getting ready to move. But nevertheless, because of this journey connection, okay, you've been saved, but you're not at the promised land yet. They have to undertake a journey that's similar to us. Because of that, Um, there's a connection with us and uh, in the book of Numbers. So just like the Israelites in the desert were saved by God, yet on a journey to the promised land, yes, God has saved us, those who believe in Christ. He's rescued us. He's redeemed us from the guilt of sin through Christ, through his death for us. We are now on that journey through the wilderness to our heavenly rest. And life can be tricky along that journey, can't it? There can be hardship. There can be temptation. Temptation to grumble, temptation to grumble about leadership, lots of many things, you know, we can uh, stumble over. Well, that's why Numbers helps us. And what we see in the first nine chapters of the book of Numbers is God taking this really ragtag bunch of immoral idolaters in hand and then reforming them and then kitting them for their journey through the desert before in chapter 10, as we've just read, they begin to move. So in chapters one to nine, God equips them. He gives them their provisions. Okay, so what does God give them? 
does God give them hydration packs? Does he give them scroggin, you know, good bags of nuts and chocolate to keep them going? Does he give them a moral compass? That would be helpful. He gives them something so wonderful, in fact, that they can meet any obstacle on the way, so reassuring that they have no need to doubt or despair, so practical that it will physically guide them through uncharted territory. This is the main message God is telling us today. God's provision for every believer on our journey to heaven is not a moral compass, it's not scrog and it's not a hydration pack, it is himself. Okay? That's the point. God's holy, uncompromising, committed, faithful, awesome presence. He gives it to us for our journey. Now, if you're someone who's personally placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you're led by him as the Lord, you will know that God lives with us by his spirit. Is that a big thing or is it a little thing? We want to say it's big, but oftentimes we treat, it like, treat him like it's little. The value of these chapters is to help us see the awesome significance of that gift. On uh, Thursday night, we farewelled Sally, our daughter, as she headed off to France for five months of study. Goodbye, my heart. Okay, it's rather nerve-wracking just to send your youngest off like that, you know. Our comfort was knowing the Lord was with her. We couldn't be, the Lord was. These first nine chapters help us appreciate the value of God's presence with us in our journey to heaven. And the first thing we see is that it is no small thing for God to dwell among his people. No small thing, because God is holy. Remember, up until now, God has been worshipped at a distance. The Israelites around Mount Sinai, God has descended uh, on the top of the mountain in fire, but it's not open access to God. When God spoke his 10 commandments from the mountain, the Israelites heard God vo God's voice, they cried out in terror, and they begged Moses to be the one who speaks to God lest they die. We don't wanna hear his voice, it's too frightening. Okay, and they would die if they actually strayed onto the mountain. That's why only Moses and Aaron and some of the elders were allowed up the mountain. And even then it was only Moses who went into the presence of God. And even then a cloud hid Moses from God's sight. And even then Moses had to wait seven days on the mountain, in the darkness, in the cloud, on the mountain, before God would even open his mouth to speak to him. It's an awesome thing to be in the presence of God. We forget that he is awesome in his holiness. He is blindingly pure. There is no darkness or evil in him at all. There was a dark cloud because there's darkness and evil in Moses and Moses needed protection from God. The question is, how is it possible that a holy God could possibly dwell with a sinful people? without those people perishing because God has come too close to them? That is the big question these chapters answer because for God to dwell with sinful people, four needs need to be met. The first need, if God is going to dwell with them, is for them to become a unified and holy people fit for service to God. And that is what God makes them. God orders Moses to conduct the first census and he counts the fighting men why? Because other people aren't important? No, of course not. But they are about to go in and take possession of the land. 
the focus here is that he's organizing them into a fighting force, unified. God organizes them into 12 tribes. He counts the number of men who are able to serve in the army. In other words, people fit to enter the promised land and ready to take it. Before this, they are a bunch of lawless, basically pagan idolaters. Now they are organized, they are a cohesive community. The contrast couldn't have been greater. God has told them how to live. He's given them the details of the law in the book of Leviticus. He has organized them. And they are organized not just a fighting force, but as a people who will have him, the Lord, in their midst. He is making them not just to be a fighting community, but a worshiping community. We see this in Numbers 2, where God describes the layout of the Israelite camp, tribe by tribe, around one central focus point. It's a bit tricky to know, did the, did, were the um, tribes arranged in a square formation or a cross formation? In one way, it doesn't really matter. But um, he arranges them, he arranges them. Okay, and they are arranged, as Michelle said, around the focal point, which is the tabernacle. And that brings us to their second need, for God to dwell amongst his people. They need a place for God to dwell. Of course, the Lord's already been dwelling in fire on the cloud of Mount Sinai, but Israel now need to move. And mountains, you might have noticed, aren't very portable. So God provides the tabernacle, kind of a portable Mount Sinai. Thing about Mount Sinai was that it provided an obvious barrier, the, the physicality of it. The people could be safely separate, separate from the Lord. The need, that need was still there with the tabernacle because if any unauthorized person presumed to come into the tent in which God dwelt, even if they were to lay their eyes on the holy furnishings, they would die. And that brings us to Israel's third need, the need for a priesthood, a, a group of people set aside who belong to God's people but also have permission to enter close to God on their, the behalf of the others and then to offer sacrifices for the rest's sin. And so in number one, sorry, Numbers chapter one, in the census, don't count the people from the tribe of Levi or those who will, as those who will serve in the army. The Levites are mine, says the Lord. They're to be in charge of my dwelling place. Only they can carry it. Only they can come close to it because chapter one, verse 51, anyone else who goes near to it shall be put to death. And that's why the Levites were told to camp immediately around the tabernacle as a kind of a buffer between the other tribes around them and the between them and the tabernacle. But even then, God's holiness was such that even the Levites had to take precautions. In chapter three, it's only one third of the Levites who could handle the belongings of the inner room of the sanctuary. The others could carry them, but only the Kohathites could, could wrap them up to be carried because if another Levite were simply to see these belongings, they'd die. And even then, there's a group within the Kohathites, Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons of the Levites, who are, who are permitted to go right into the sanctuary itself. And even then, when two of Aaron's sons make an offering with unauthorized fire before the Lord, they fall down dead, chapter three, verse three. So if God in his holiness is to dwell amongst his people in their sinfulness, they need a priesthood as well as a tabernacle, lest the people be destroyed by God the Lord coming too close to them. Now, if you think it's overly unfair of the Lord to just kill people like that, we need to remember and see 
that what's written here should actually make us fear the Lord instead of judge him. This is the Lord we're talking about. And he's, he's relational and he is loving and he is pure, but we are not. And means need to be provided for us to coexist. And then if we take him seriously, we'll take into account the, the fourth need, the need for purity. Imagine for a moment what it would be like to camp with upwards not just of a million, probably two to three million people. Well, the dangers would be very obvious. Infection, um, theft. Imagine camping with that many tents around, kids running everywhere. Adultery, that'd be a danger. Add to that the difference it would make if the living God was in the midst of your campground. And now you understand there's a need for purity. There's a need for ceremonial purity. The Israelites with infectious skin diseases or had had contact with dead bodies, they are to be sent away from the camp for a time so as not to defile the rest of the camp. Because when the holy God is present, there can be no defilement. But they need purity not just in the ceremonial sense, also the Israelites needed to be relationally pure towards each other. Now that means you need to put things right if you've wronged someone. You need to make restitution if you've wronged someone. And some more. And even more importantly, you need to make atonement with God because chapter five, verse five, unfaithfulness towards one's neighbor is unfaithfulness towards the Lord. And that's why in the relationships where faithfulness matters the most, the marriage relationships, almost a whole chapter, is devoted to describing how you can test the allegation a man might make against his wife about her unfaithfulness. Now, when you read that, it's kind of jarring, isn't it? Doesn't it take two to tango? <laughs> you know, I think this is in the culture where it was guys who would make accusations against, it's not saying the guys are pure, but women back then I don't think made these accusations, uh, even though they could have. Um, in the Bible study notes, there is a whole article, which I've largely footnoted there in the, from the Gospel Coalition, about questions which might come up for you from that chapter. I just refer you to that. We haven't got time to go through it now. It's a very helpful article. But the point is that holiness must translate itself into relational purity. And if anyone wants to be like the Levites, who are set aside as holy to the Lord, as useful to him, if anyone else who's not a Levite, God provides a way. The Nazarite vow in chapter six, and special optional vow of devotion to God open to anyone to take. So what these first nine chapters outline for us are four needs that God's people have if God is going to dwell among us. Number one, we need to be unified and holy to be made useful to God. Number two, God needs to have a dwelling place. Number three, there needs to be an effective priesthood to keep us from dying. Number four, God's people need to be pure in his sight. And so at the end of chapter nine, as we heard in our reading, with those needs now met, the awesome and the holy God of fire and cloud moves from Mount Sinai and takes up residence with his people above the tabernacle. This is a monumental moment in the history of Israel. God is dwelling with them. And he gives Israel 
their greatest provision that they will need in the journey ahead. He gives them himself. He was with them. When he moved, they moved. When he, in the column of fire, stopped, they stopped. He was with them to guide them through the promised land. Friends, it is an awesome thing for God to dwell amongst his people. That's what we see in the book of Numbers. And I want to say the connection with us is direct because that is what we have. Now you say, I don't see a pillar of fire. I didn't see a pillar of fire when I came into church. We're hardly a military equipped unit on the march in some physical battle. There's no tabernacle with priests who are offering sacrifices on our behalf. This is an old story. True, but this story, you have to understand, is part of a larger story in the Bible involving us, a story about God's commitment to dwell with his people. Like the Israelites, we too have been saved as God's holy people. Like the Israelites, we too are yet to inherit the heavenly land promised to us. Like the Israelites, God is with us on the journey. Where's the tabernacle and the priests? Well, of course, between us and the Israelites stands Christ. And so we need to read the book of Numbers through the lens of Jesus. And when we do that, we see because of Jesus, God is present with us by his spirit, and this is even more wonderful for us than it was for the Israelites. Because do you remember remember the problem of God's presence? Chapter one, verse 53, the need for the Levites to camp around the tabernacle, yes, lest God's wrath fall on the community. Chapter three, verse one, how Aaron's two sons fell dead before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire. Chapter three, verse 10 and 38, of how anyone who even approached the inner sanctuary was to be put to death. Chapter eight, verse 19, how if that happened, then the Levites were there to provide atonement so that no plague would then break out against the Israelites because of that person's sin. There's a problem. If Numbers teaches us anything, it's it's a wonderful but a dangerous thing for the living God to dwell with you. And yet we know from chapter six in the blessing of the priests, God's plan is to turn his face towards us, to give us peace. How is it possible? Well, the hint is provided in the arrangement of the camp. If you read chapter two carefully, you see that the tribe of Judah, this this is a bit skew-if, okay, that's north. The tribe of Judah as well as Moses and the priests, uh, they're on the east side of the tabernacle. Now, east is an important direction in the Bible. I don't know if you've realized this. The Garden of Eden was east of where the Israelites would end up being. The sun with its light and warmth rises in the east. And so here, hope comes from the east, from Judah highlighting Jacob's blessing of Judah way back in Genesis 49, that kings would come out of Judah. And from the priests, God makes provision for one among them, the high priest, who would also be a king, who would enter the very presence of God just as Moses himself had done. 
We, after Christ, know that Jesus is the king from the tribe of Judah. He is the eternal priest who has come. And what Numbers helps us to see is that Jesus fulfills all the needs for God to dwell among us, and we could go through them. It's fulfilled in him. He is the source of our unity. He came and identified as God's people. He was baptized as a sinner, even though he wasn't a sinner, he was innocent. Sinners need to be baptized when you think about it, yet why did Jesus was baptized? Why did he need to be baptized? If John says, I need to be baptized by you, you don't need to be baptized by me. Jesus said, no, it has to happen. He came to identify, you see, with sinners amongst God's people, meaning that for everyone who's forgiven, our unity is in him. Secondly, Jesus is God's true dwelling place. Colossians says, Paul says, um, in him all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He was God incarnate, born, the living God born, took on human flesh. God in a person, physical person. Think of the transfiguration, how Jesus' clothes were trans and face were transfigured with the dazzling brilliance of God. Peter saw it. And yet why wasn't Peter zotted on the spot as any Israelite would have been if he looked into the tabernacle? Because thirdly, Jesus is also our priesthood. He is our great high priest who not only stands between us and God but gives himself as the atoning sacrifice for sin. He's the priest and the sacrifice rolled into one. He is the once for all sacrifice that turns away God's anger from us forever. And finally, he is our purity. Those who believe in him are identified with him and when God looks at us, he sees not us ourselves, he sees us in Christ. He cannot see us separate from Jesus. He sees Christ's righteousness that has become ours through faith. And that makes Jesus our holiness, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. In the story of the Bible, it's because of all that Jesus is and did for us that in him God can now dwell with us through his spirit. And even though that same spirit is holy and does not tolerate sin, Jesus remains that priestly buffer between us and God. It's because Jesus is our priest that God can dwell with us through his Holy Spirit without us dying. Do you remember Pentecost? Do you remember how the sign that the Holy Spirit was with them? The tongues of fire? Fire being the sign of the presence of God. Do you remember what was the sign of God's presence in the book of Numbers? A column of fire. So after Jesus dies, he pours out the Holy Spirit, his spirit, that's how he is with us always to the end of the age, through his spirit. He pours out his spirit and it's signified as really him, really the Lord with the tongue of fire. Now, why is it that the, those who were there weren't zotted on the spot, consumed by the holiness of God? Because Jesus Christ had come and he had died 
once for all. He had been the atoning sacrifice. He had been the priest. He had turned away God's anger, meaning that the way was now clear for God to dwell with his people without fear anymore. That's the difference that Christ makes. And now anyone who believes in him receives the Holy Spirit and God dwells in us through him. What difference does the Holy Spirit make? Well, now for us, go out from here. He makes us unified so that once, just once as we, we, when we trust in Christ and receive God's Spirit, our, we, we are unified. We have the fellowship of the Spirit. Our job is not to create the unity. Our job is to keep it. Maintain the unity through the bond of peace, Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 3. Secondly, having the Spirit makes us, us, God's dwelling place. Do you think about yourself like that? Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? And that's the basis that he exhorts us to be holy and to put aside sin and sexual immorality. You cannot have those things coexisting happily with God who has taken up residence in you. Thirdly, more than that, having the Spirit makes us God's priesthood. Peter writes, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a kingdom of priests. And finally, having the spirit purifies us. Peter says we are chosen according to the sanctifying or the purifying work of the spirit. Good Christian, in your journey towards the celestial city, what provisions has God given you for your journey? Well, he has given you himself. And to us today through Jesus, God incarnate, died, risen, ascended, who poured out his spirit, the Lord is with us through all who believe. Now, this is massively encouraging and massively reassuring because when the journey seems long, too long, or it seems hard, too hard, and we seem so weak, we need to remember the column of fire the tongues of fire and remind us we are not the same as everyone else. The holy God dwells within us. He is with us to guide us to our heavenly inheritance. And as we go through numbers, we're gonna see how he does it. And it's sanctifying, I have to say. <laughs> but the presence of God is massively reassuring but also massively significant, it is no small thing for the Holy God to dwell with us. When we grasp that the Spirit of God, uh, through whom God dwells with us, when he, we grasp He is holy, we cannot think of ourselves the same. We will consciously think of ourselves as those who have been made holy by God, and vessels carrying the Spirit of God. And this only through the incredible sacrifice and ministry of Jesus, our high priest. 
That means when we are tempted to turn from God when the going is tough, we have to remember the column of fire over the tabernacle. We have to remember the tongues of fire over the first disciples. Uh, That sign wasn't repeated. We only needed it once to get the point that it is no small thing for a holy God to dwell with those who believe in Jesus. God's spirit is with us to help us, help convict our hearts to turn away from sin and worldliness, to put put that behind us and to keep going despite the difficulties we encounter trusting him. What has God said to us through these chapters? Well, we're about to get to some juicy stories, as I said, but the formwork, the formwork is so important to lay. God is saying, because of Christ, the holy God now dwells with us through his Holy Spirit to bring us, his holy people, to our promised heavenly rest. This is massively reassuring and massively big. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for these wonderful chapters in the book of Numbers. And we ask, gracious God, that we would think of ourselves rightly. Yes, people on a journey, yes, sinners needing redemption, but made holy through the sacrifice and blood of Jesus, which sets us aside, made holy through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and then given you as a provision. Our loving Father, may we not treat it as a light or small thing that you dwell amongst us. Help us to think of ourselves differently. Help us to think of ourselves rightly in this light. In Jesus' name, amen. I think after hearing the powerful yet really humbling truth that we are the dwelling places of God, that it's only right for us to confess our sins to him. And the words will be on the screen. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Merciful God, our maker and our judge. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and what we have failed to do. We have not loved you with our whole heart or had you in the center of our lives. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We repent and we're sorry for all our sins. Father, forgive us. Strengthen us to love and obey you in newness of life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And Nathan will lead us in corporate prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today's message. We praise you that you were faithful even when Israel was not. We are so thankful for the many ways throughout history you have shown your love and mercy. Like children who were totally dependent on their parents for every need, 
You care for each one of us and you desire to be a part of our lives every day. You are our Father and you know best. We are thankful for your spirit and that you are sovereign and the one who is best qualified to determine our path. Help us to trust you and draw upon your wisdom. We pray that you would shape us and grow us to be obedient children who honour you with our thoughts and actions, seeking your kingdom and following only you. Keep us pure and holy, able to discern what is true and noble and right, and seeking the things that are pure, lovely and admirable, not doing these things in our own strength, uh, but through your spirit and from a deep desire to love and honour you as our Heavenly Father. Dear Lord, we, we pray for our missionary families who are back in Australia. We pray for Maggie and also the Davises. Help them to reconnect with family and friends, and we ask that you would refresh and rejuvenate them, giving them wisdom to work through their next steps and help them settle into Australian life. We ask that you would also put people around them to encourage and assist them in their ongoing service and provide them with all their practical needs. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the programs and ministry activities which are occurring in our community. We thank you for the recent women's retreat. We thank you for this time of fellowship and the chance to delve into your word. We pray for the men's ministry event coming up that it would also give the blokes a chance to encourage one another and hear your gospel clearly through the wine event. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the young adults in our church family. We particularly pray for wisdom as they navigate study, work, church, youth leadership, and all the other competing things which can sometimes create a complicated mess of commitments Give them wisdom to know how to best spend their time, shaped by prayer and growing in faith through reading your word. Lastly, Lord, you know our world is hurting and it is often hard to know how to pray and what to pray. So we simply pray that you would come soon and that the good news of Jesus and the salvation that only he can offer would be made known to our family and relatives friends, neighbours, colleagues, our nation and across the world. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the band comes up for our final song, I'd like to thank you all for being here today. And um, for those who regularly come, um, the way the church works, the only way it does work is because of how generous and how giving um, its congregation is. And so for those who do so already, I thank you a lot. I very much enjoy church. Um, and for those who haven't or need to consider it, um, the details should be up on the screen. But yes, no? Ask Chris or Moz, they'd let you know um, if you want to give, but I, I'll hand it over to the band now. Please stand as we worship God with our final song.
strong and mighty fortress Raise your voice now, no love is greater Who can stand against us if our God is for us? you next week for our chapters 11 and 14 of Numbers against grumbling and I'd like to send you out with these words from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Have a great week.